Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone. Good evening. How are you feeling? I got Good. two waters. We have two waters. We're privileged. And a gavel. <laughs> Well, welcome to tonight's program at the Commonwealth Club. My name is Erika Aguilar. I'm a senior editor for affordable housing, um, housing affordability, I should say, at KQED. Excited to be here, excited to be on stage, especially with our guest, New York Times journalist, Connor Doherty. Thanks for being here with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for agreeing to do this with me. Is that what I... Of course. I mean, when they asked, I was like, ah, yeah, I'm already reading this. This is on my bedstand right now. Um, so as you guys probably all know, and it's why you're here, Connor is a Bay Area-based economic reporter who's focused on issues uh, surrounding uh, the real estate area here in, in, Bay, in the Bay Area, in California, nationwide. Um, he's focused his writing on gentrification, wage deflation, and between his decade for working um, with the Wall Street Journal to now his book, which is titled uh, Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America, if you've not had it. That's what it looks like, and he'll be signing some books later. Um, Connor has really established himself as um, one of the nation's like leading writer, uh, analysis, uh, just someone who's watching what is going on in California as we experience what is a housing shortage and an affordability crisis. Golden Gates focuses on our own city here in San Francisco, and it labels you know the Bay Area as this epicenter of the West Coast of you know what's going on with what we're experiencing with housing and all the crunch here. The book also discusses the current moment of extreme wealth and inequality, uh, insecurity in housing, homelessness, decades of policy and anti-growth. It introduces you to characters who've been working on this issue and uses um, what I appreciate as a journalist, narrative-based storytelling, um, to really explain what is often a very wonky, uh, you know, topic. Yeah, totally. Housing policy, um, and it just you know it serves as a, as a, as a cautionary maybe to to other. Um, other other country of oh, other countries, but other 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 states, countries too, perhaps. Maybe not. Who knows? <laughs> well, we're very excited for having you here. Thank you again, and let's get started with some. Um, I want to get started with some news. Uh, yesterday was elections. Most of you, I hope, went out to the polls and made your decisions. Um, but California's, you know, California voters. Uh, went for, for Senator Bernie Sanders. Uh, but locally here in San Francisco, we had a couple of proposition measures. Um, one that limited, uh, well, does, it's going to limit, um, office development when housing goals aren't met. And San Jose has now a real estate transfer tax that they say is going to be used to build affordable housing in the Bay Area and their city. And in San Diego, some voters there seem to have rejected a measure that would have allowed housing in a part of a country, uh, part of the county there uh, that's zoned rural or semi-rural. Connor, I wanted to find out what you make of some of these local measures and, and what you just made. I know you were watching because yes. I was following you on Twitter. I was Twitter. kind of watching. <laughs> Tell me what you, you made. You and of- I were both watching and loving that Texas and California were the only two things anybody cared about. Last as a native Texan, yes. I, was, I was very appreciative. Yes. And as a, as a home to California, I was like, yes, we are on the spotlight here. But what did you make of last night's election results? And, and, and what does it sort of tell you about the things that you write about? So what it tell, So I can't make any prognostications about like Bernie Sanders or whatever, sure. uh, because uh, 
I'm I'm not allowed to talk about anything that the Upshot writes about. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, but um, but the uh, I just see chaos and people trying to figure it out. I feel like any one election, you know, what, what always makes me laugh. People make fun of me for this, but I, I'm an economic supporter, and I came to yeah. this as a, thinking about shelter and the economy. Mm -hmm. And then I said to somebody when I first started writing the book, I was like, man, there's a lot of politics in this. It's so weird. And people are like, what housing? Are you kidding me? And I was like, I just never really thought about it. You know, uh, because I had spent so much time thinking about it purely as a, as a higher macro issue. Mm -hmm. But I see all these people trying to figure this out, uh, figuring out how to pay for affordable housing, figuring out how to, where to put any housing, uh, figuring out, what policies will have the effects they want them to have or what policies are doing the opposite of what they think it's going to do. Right. Um, and I talk about this in the book, you know, Jerry Brown in 19, the 1980s passed uh, a bunch of bills that were designed to end the housing problem. Clearly that did not work out the way yeah. people thought about it. And you can go find old articles of Diane Feinstein when she was mayor promising that homelessness will be ended by Christmas of like that year, Wow! Uh, you know? So there have been all these moments where we've been kind of like perennially dealing with this. And it feels like right now, and I know what your last question is. We're going to circle back here, (laughs) Uh, but it feels like right now you're seeing just everyone focused on it. And whether it's a transfer tax or where are we going to put housing? And it's, it's like chaotic, Mm -hmm. but it's mainly the only thing we're, t- we're dealing with and talking about in this state. And even to, uh, it is now penetrating the, a little bit, not as much as I would like the presidential campaigns. Uh, well, Joe Biden finally released his housing plan. He was the last one to do that. That's right. So it seems like everyone is at least agreeing on what the problem is. Yeah. And that alone is progress. I think, you know, polls that have recently been done um, in the last month or so have shown that Californians say housing and homelessness is their top two major concerns in in, in the state and and want the governor and the legislature to work on that. So I think we're right on the money on that one. Uh, You know, your book focuses on uh, a lot of the Bay Area. There are a lot of different cities in the Bay Area that you go to. And in it, you write that the city in San Francisco is just an exaggerated example of the geographic inequalities that are rising in tandem with global income and wealth gaps. This line to me, and I tweeted it out this morning too, was like, this line to me was a warning that other regions, not just in California, but across the, the country, that it, that, you know, if cities ignore growth needs along with promoting um, economic booms, that this maybe is what you might be getting. Is that the warning that you're trying to maybe send out in the message of your book? Yeah, it's a couple things. So for a long time, and I of course think this is completely valid, uh, California has been seen as like an early look at the nation's future. Sure. And typically that was an optimistic vision. Maybe it's like now a warning (laughs) vision. Uh, It's a cautionary tale, as you say. But I really don't think of this as a Bay Area book. I think of it as a book about housing and cities. Mm -hmm. So in our economy right now, and this is not some Bay Area thing, uh, we have uh, high inequality. And some of that's due to policies and stuff like that. And we should totally be working on all that. But a lot of it's also due to the economy just kind of uh, 
bifurcating into what are called like knowledge workers, people who tend to do relatively well and work with their mind in some capacity. Mm -hmm. It could be entertainment. It could be uh, obviously building software platforms or tech. It could be medical uh, research, that type of thing. But this knowledge piece of our economy, which tends to be higher paid and higher productivity is is like one pole. And then the other side is like the service economy. Uh, people like dog walkers or uh, soul cycle instructors or uh, <laughs> of which we have many in this uh, area. Uh, and um, <laughs> people who clean houses, people who watch after children, people who watch after the elderly. Uh, I moved back uh, to, to, to the Bay Area uh, because my mom was dying of Alzheimer's here. And, you know, but, uh, paying... For that kind of care, and now I have two children. That is like a huge piece of our economy that people couldn't function without. So those are kind of our poles of the economy, uh, and we don't have as much of a middle class, which was typically uh, sh manufacturing back in the day. That's what we thought of that right. as being a middle wage job. Factory right? Those two groups of people not only are kind of the symbols of the economy bifurcating into what they call the barbell economy now, like two big. Uh, poles and then a little rail of middle class, they have to be next to each other because knowledge workers tend to want to work to be near each other. Uh, that's why Google and Facebook and uh, have like lunch on campus. And to stuff share like. ideas. They think that they're sharing ideas. There's all this stuff they can't measure. And what they, what they can't measure is how ideas are transferred and that when people are just like kind of near each other face to face, they just like Creativity. seem to do that better. Right. You can't measure that. Uh, and then uh, service type people are basically waiting on these people. They have, they are, they are creating their service is a personal service. It's I'm watching after your kid. I'm taking care of your uh, parent or grandparent. It is. I am, uh, you know, walking, walking your, your dog. dog. Yeah. Ooh, very, very important. <laughs> I see them up and down the street. Yeah. And, um, and so that is what our economy looks like. Our housing, uh, market need, whatever our housing, I guess market is the best way to sure. put it. it. Does not look anything like that, and so it's chaos because because you have, everyone needs a house. Well, and but we do not have we have wages for people that are at a lower end of the income spectrum. We certainly have an economy that rests on those people would fall apart if people couldn't walk out, watch after. I uh, the woman who looks after my kid was sick for three days, and it, we worked it out, but it was like really hard, you know. Um, we gave her lots of time to get ready or to sure. to, to get herself better, but. But our housing, there's no housing for that huge, important piece of our economy. Mm -hmm. And that is not some Bay Area thing because all around the country, you see these kind of knowledge workers pulling away all around the country. You see tremendous needs for a, a, a certain, all the things robots can't do. Mm -hmm. And and all around the country, the this people who are on the lower end of the income spectrum are either getting crowded in mm -hmm. more and more, or they're moving further and further out uh, and enduring what are called super commutes, which is a commute over three hours. Right. So, or they're paying more than 30% of their income, which was yes, a quarter of tenants burden. spend half their income on rent. Mm -hmm. So the Bay area, because it's symbolic of this and, you know, uh, is, has the big tech industry and a horrible housing problem is probably the best place to tell the story. But uh, my wife is from Minneapolis. My wife, who's right here, go, is from Minneapolis. Ooh. And we go there. I always call it my surrogate uh, uh, city for two weeks each summer. 
they have a huge housing problem there. It's not as bad as ours, but I was just in Minneapolis for a conference at the Federal Reserve there, and they were saying this is the main thing they're talking about now. It's the main thing they're worried about. Minneapolis just became the first major city in America to get rid of single-family zoning, and what that means is right. you can build three ho- three units uh, on any plot now mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the city. So... You're even seeing, I think, Nebraska just passed a big zoning law. And a lot of our country is zoned for single family. Totally. So this, the Bay Area, I think, was a great place to tell the story because it's kooky. So it does provide some (laughs) entertainment value. And it's bad. And it's further along that the policy is like you're getting a better sense of how uh, this plays out with a really robust tenants' rights movement finally uh, erupting, probably big as it's been since like the 70s. You're seeing things like SB 50, which was this statewide proposal to make it possible to build density, like four to eight-story apartment buildings within a half mile of any train stop or... Job um, center, yeah. Yeah. So we're further along, but we're not unique. Yeah. As much as we want to be unique. I hear it from my family who are out in Texas yeah. who are, are worried about you know rent increases. Or even like Dallas, which was kind of like... <clears throat> the most, this really, really, really uh, affordable place. They're starting, I mean, it's still much cheaper than here, but it, the prices are going up yeah. a lot from where they were just a couple of years ago. That's super interesting. You know, one of the stories you tell in the book is about a development in Lafayette. Um, it's proposed. one of my, proposed. Yes, <laughs> proposed one. You're right. It's one of my favorites. There's nothing stories. there yet. Um, because, it, so this, this development is slated for 315 uh, apartments or was slated for 315 apartments. It was like way more than what residents wanted there. Um, I believe they wanted four on, on this lot. On a 22-acre lot. Right. <laughs> it's not like a lot, you know, like, like this little thing. Yeah. Well, you used the city manager there as a character to tell this story, um, much because he was the one who was negotiating uh, the development there. Um you know, why did you choose to highlight this story? And what do you think it says? So one of the things I tried to do in this book <clears throat> is interweave all these stories so that people would, so that you never knew who anyone was. Sometimes someone's the hero. Sometimes they're the villain. Sometimes you're not sure how to feel about them. Uh, you find out. So so one of the other stories, just to to go off track for a small second and then I'll get back to Lafayette. One of the other stories in the book is this 15-year-old girl who comes home one day mm-hmm. and f- discovers that there's an $800 rent increase in her house or in her t- two-bedroom apartment. And uh, she... This is the one uh, down in the peninsula. Yes, down in the peninsula. And so she organizes... Uh, she doesn't know what she's doing. Uh, she's not like from some like group, but she organizes this apartment building to fight the landlord ends up organizing another apartment building to fight the landlord. I should note this is a young Latino girl whose mom does elder care, cleans houses, and moonlights as a janitor. So she's like the woman who cleans your house, the woman who watches after your grandparent, and then the woman who's like wheeling the trash can in as you're leaving the office. The service workers that you Yeah, she's like all those people in one day. Mm -hmm. So she obviously has no capacity to organize, so her daughter takes it upon herself to do that. Okay. They eventually... Spoiler, I hope you guys already bought books. They <laughs> they do lose their apartment in the course. But then you get to meet the family that moves into that apartment. And then you discover you've actually met them much earlier in the book. You weren't expecting them to be the family that mm-hmm. uh, 
that that is going to occupy their apartment. Yeah. Right? You know, you, you, you're like, wait, I thought that family was struggling too. And of course they were. And anyway, so interweaving those stories so you never know who anyone is, is like, I, I hope you remember that you had met that family earlier in the book. But anyway, um, <laughs> uh, anyway, so the city manager in Lafayette. And Lafayette, he was, there was this group of people in the Bay Area who had started, I'm, I'm really going off track here, but there was this woman, I, I swear we're going to get back to Lafayette. <laughs> I'm telling you. Well, I think what there you're trying this, to say well, is I'm that trying, they're always interlaced. Well, so the, but I'm telling you truly, honestly, why I picked him. So there is this woman in the Bay Area who many people around here may have heard of named Sonia, yeah, who started a group called the Bay Area Renters Federation, or BARF. And, <laughs> uh, and she had started organizing people to fight for more housing mm-hmm. in the Bay Area. What year was that? About 2011. So. It's about the time, you know, that rents were starting to hike up here. Yes. Uh, she, I'm sorry. She, I'm sorry. It was about 2013. She'd been here since 2011. Right. So she... Uh, is reading about this law. So then one day she reads about this development in Lafayette. Mm-hmm. And what had happened in Lafayette was there was a big parcel not too far from BART. And uh, this parcel had been zoned for high-density development for many, 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 many years. Uh, they had this written in a bunch of city plans. Right. Uh, and this developer, but this old kind of hermit character lived on it and they never really thought he'd do anything with it. But then he died and like that, somebody proposed like a 315 unit apartment development on it. Yes. The city, of course, goes nuclear. The city manager. The city residents. Yes. Uh, and the city manager goes and goes to the developer and basically says, look, can we, this people are going berserk. Can we just like work something out? And which I, I might say is is kind of like a strategy when we think definitely. about development projects. A developer would come up, says, "I want to build four hundred stuff, right?" And everyone's like, yes. "No, no, no! I'm going to give you a hundred. And they say, "Why don't we shake hands on two hundred and we're done?" So, totally. So, but the developer threatened to sue them because it is illegal in California to zone something out from under someone. Like if you zone your property and you say, "Look, we're going to put affordable housing there," the second someone proposes that on it, you can't be like, oh, actually, we didn't really want affordable housing there. That's illegal. No take backs. Yes. Yeah. Well, no, it's called the housing accountability. <laughs> anyway, so there you go. <laughs> but yeah, even if you don't know anything about the housing accountability, you can basically get the idea. Like if you say this goes there, the way I say it is this, don't it's illegal for you not to follow your own laws. Right. Don't change the uh, rules. So that is the, the rule. So, um, and I think it's almost like, and you think about it, it's almost like a reneging on a contract. You don't say like, oh, everyone can build this here, this there, and then say, actually, never mind, none of that applies after they propose it. So right. business and economic yes. like so predictability. This, yes. And so this developer had them. Like he had the perfect route to this case and they knew that he could sue them and win. So the, so the city manager went to him and said like, look, can we just please work something out, right? So they they settled on 44 single-family homes instead of 315 apartments. That's such a difference. So I should note, four years have passed now. So there's two years to have a, to even talk about the 300, to, for residents to even have the chance to be pissed off about the 315 apartments. Then they say, let's make a deal. Two more years passed for them to have a chance to be either pissed off or not pissed off about the 44 <laughs> single-family homes. So they're about to have the final city council meeting to propose 
the 44 single family homes that is now four years long and all this negotiating. And somebody writes an article that says, oh, like a history of the project and oh, this guy threatened to this Housing Accountability Act. So Sonia is off in San Francisco trying to make her way as an activist. And she sees an article that says Housing Accountability Act. Mm -hmm. And she goes, huh, I've never heard of that. Opens up a new window on her computer and Googles Housing Accountability Act and goes, huh, I'm going to go sue the city and try to make them build the original 315-unit apartment complex that they've now spent four years uh, and she is not a lawyer. She copies and pastes a Housing Accountability Act lawsuit that pre-exists, just writes new details in. Color this by is number. good enough that the city freaks out, has to pay her a bunch of money to go away uh, because she's done a convincing enough. She did actually eventually find a lawyer to help her with the case. And I assume the developer was like, wait, but I've got just 44 now. <laughs> yeah, the developer has to pay her to go away because he's now <laughs> indemnified the project. So he's now argued both sides of the same case. He's threatened to sue the city and then he's defended the city from Sonia and he's paid for both sides of the same case. So he's, he's argued and paid for both sides of the same case now. What? But after four years of buying this land and sitting on it and, uh, and, and filing two separate applications, which are like a million dollars each, because, you know, they're like this thick. You need multiple lawyers and environment, uh, environmental reports and all this. Okay. Yeah. So Sonia's finally gotten away. So then, no sooner than they get rid of the lawsuit that has sued them for it being too small, another group of neighbors come and sue them for <laughs> being too big. Right. Because even after all this negotiating, they're not happy about the 44 single family homes. Fast forward another year, and they have an election to rescind the city's approval of the 44 single family. I hope you guys are following. <laughs> you know, lawsuit uh, here, lawsuit To rescind there, the approval there. of the smaller thing. Sure. They have the election. It passes. So they've now undone the 44 single family home compromise that they've spent four years and dismissed another lawsuit working towards. What nobody who voted for this realizes is that the developer had secured an agreement that said, if for some reason this doesn't work out, I get to go build the 315 unit. And now we're back at square one. So the first city council meeting they have after this successful election, it was like, we won. (laughs) The developer shows up and goes, hey, and... Let's build the 315 unit apartments. <laughs> uh, so it turned out that they probably, it has not been resolved yet. Oh, see. It's but it still turned on out that they probably voted for the bigger thing by trying to get rid of the smaller thing. Um, and the best part is in the meantime, though? Sonia, after losing, goes and convinces, uh, uh, with somebody else, Nancy Skinner, who's a state senator from uh, Berkeley, to pass a new law based on them losing the lawsuit that makes it almost impossible to lose a Hounding Accountability Act lawsuit. So for the third time, the developer's probably going to file another lawsuit. Wow. Uh, so he's now paid for two lawsuits. He'll probably file his own. So there you go. He's finally learning how to... So it was... a hideous situation. But you don't have to be like a hardcore libertarian to say... Maybe that's a little much to build. Uh, you know, our is, I guess it's six years now. It's eight years now. Eight years, potentially three lawsuits. 
rewriting state law for a parcel that was zoned like 50 years ago for exactly what the developer proposed on it. And the city manager resigned. Yes. So the reason I picked this guy after all this talking about <laughs> is that it intersected three stories. He was trying to build they, – they did declare that they would make part of the thing affordable housing. So we need affordable housing for people like this girl. Sonia's there suing him from one side. So she's – and she's earlier in the book, so you get to know her too. And then uh, on top of that, you have this city manager. And so much of what happens with housing is these unelected people who just kind of sit there and run planning departments and, you know, really actually make things happen. Mm-hmm. And I kind of felt like he was, that was a perspective I didn't, we don't have enough of uh, a lot, a lot of it's all, what bill are we going to pass? But here's the poor guy who has to sit there and actually try to make it work. work. Um, And I thought that what I loved about that project is all the stories intersect, all the policy intersects. It's weird. And it's uh, complicated too. And I think that's yeah. just what reflective of what it means, what is what it actually takes. Sometimes people ask me like, why, you know, we passed this bond. Why isn't housing built next year? And I was like, well, it takes a while to build housing. And you have all of these layers and the litig- and the lawsuits and stuff that go with it. it. It takes a really long time. And I think that's what reflective of it. But yeah. I, I want to get to um, some of your questions and just incorporate them into our conversation. Oh, okay, never mind. mind. That's how we're going to do it. Um, you know, so someone's asking, um, how do those investing in the housing market do it in a responsible manner so that not to exaggerate the current crisis? I don't know that I have an answer for that, an easy answer for that. Sure. So I can say this. What we need in America and in California is what we call missing middle housing. And missing middle means middle class as well as like it looks middle. So giant condos like we have around us right now are not going to be affordable. Once you start getting into subterranean parking and huge glass and steel, that's not going to be affordable. And single family homes just can be affordable. They're not expensive to build, but the land use, the the intensity of land use makes it more expensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you have like three and four story uh, things like you see in Philadelphia, row homes, like that has, without elevators, that has some prayer of being market rate affordable without a subsidy to the person living there. And we need a lot more of that. Um, I think we're actually starting to kind of backdoor build that with things like what are called accessory dwelling units, which are basically homes in the backyard. Casita, uh, yes, granny exactly. flats. Find, find our special name, but it's a home in the backyard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that, you know, I think we're kind of moving towards things like this, but we need to build more of that kind of like middle housing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we need to recognize that if we're going to have an economy uh, where you have... Um, these service workers and these knowledge workers right next to each other. So here's an image I always think about. This isn't a perfect image, but I think it's a great one. Should we close our eyes? Yes. yes. Uh, you don't have to close your eyes. Okay. How many people in this room, this is going to sound patronizing, but let's just, you know, do it. Uh, have seen the painted ladies in San Francisco or well, have a postcard a or watched the opening of full house where the painted ladies are okay, right Okay. Everybody's there. hands goes up now, right? Okay. okay. How many people can, 
Should we do this? Yeah. Can someone raise their hand and tell me what is right next to the last, the uppermost painted lady on the... Uh, does it, how, how many people know the answer to that question? Raise their hand. Why don't you tell it's us? It's a smaller number, but <laughs> Go ahead tell me what it looks like. Sir, in the front row. Empty lot. It's an empty no, lot. Well, what's pretty much right next to it on the corner? A five, a seven-story apartment building. Apartment yes. building. Okay. That is always invariably cropped out of that picture. Oh wow! But I've it's never right even there. Noticed. If you, it is right on it. It is. It is directly next door to the 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 first house in the lineup. I think it's six or seven. Wow. Uh, that is what a normal functioning city looks like. That's how a city is used. That's how a city becomes vibrant. But for some reason, we don't like that. We don't want to see that. We don't want to, we want to think that this cute little seven beautifully painted colorful homes with the lovely skyline in the background, that's like our, our vision of what's we're, beautiful. We're reaching for? I don't know. But that's what it actually looks like with that giant apartment complex right on it. Mm-hmm. And that's how it works. Mm-hmm. That's how the city works. Mm-hmm. I think we have to kind of like ask ourselves what works. Yeah. In terms of, uh, are you saying in terms of zoning? Are you t- are you saying in terms of funding for it? I mean, well, that's like not a. I don't think that we can buy our way out of this crisis. I think we have to try to fund as much affordable housing as we can. But I think you know whether we like it or not, many of the things that really accelerate and change things in America are in the private sector. Mm-hmm. So finding ways to build all sorts of different kinds of housing at all sorts of different kinds of levels, I think is going to be, you're you're not going to solve it until you do that. I would also note, and this is highly important, the way we build affordable housing, which by which we mean subsidized housing is not any real, it's not substantially different than how we build market rate housing has to go through the same process. The only thing that's really different is who writes the check. Uh, Which is a quilt to finances. Yeah, totally. But how you, so we can make some progress there. But imagine trying to propose an affordable complex going through eight years and seven lawsuits and a, I mean, you know, well, you and know, then being, and then having to tell your funder, oh, I need you to hold on for the, you know. and the prices of labor goes up, the prices of, of lumber goes up and, you know, uh, time is money. I totally, I, I get that. Well, you know, this means me of, um, you know, this idea earlier, uh, starting last year into this year, we've heard of um, the chants that were coming out of the Moms for Housing um, group who made us really pay attention to the commodification of housing. And some lawmakers that I've been talking to have even told me that they're working on legislation that would ask voters potentially this year, uh, maybe next year, about deciding whether the state constitution should be amended to guarantee a right for housing um, or to guarantee or declare that housing is a human right. Is that what's sort of needed like to de- decommodify housing and to, to ensure that people have like a decent place to sleep? So Moms for Housing, which you're referring to, is a group of women in Oakland who uh, a home had been bought, uh, a vacant home a family who lived in a home sold the home to somebody who wanted to renovate it and then sell it for more money after renovating it. Flipper is the term that people use. Uh, and they occupied this house illegally. It was a kind of, what do you call that? Um, no, but what's the a more, protest? Uh, yes, a protest. Like, um, it's not conscientious of you. What do we call, what do you call like? 
civil disobedience. I see. See, that's what. The, yes, an act of civil Audience disobedience, and it was very calculated. You know, uh, they they knew what they wanted to do in the statement they wanted to make, uh, and they certainly made it. They got a lot of attention and all that. Uh, I think that that drawing attention to that issue is really important, but. Um, and I think that if we declared in our constitution, we declared as part of our values that people shouldn't be sleeping on the streets. I think those are all great ideas. If you don't build it, and if everyone fights it, where you try to build it, whether it's affordable or market rate, it doesn't seem, it seems like that's going to be an empty gesture. I think that people need to, I think at some point they're going to have to recognize that a functioning city looks like the painted ladies with a giant apartment building next to it and be okay with that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think any declaration in the constitution uh, stake is going to change that. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. Another piece of my, my favorite part of my uh, of, uh, of your book here is you make this really interesting point about San Francisco renters fearing development because of gentrification, but at the same time, homeowners fearing development because of property values might go down. And 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 you you say like, isn't this interesting? You know, you put these two things together. How do you overcome that? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, that is the question, but. There's this. Wait, will you will you give me the book for a second? Yeah, of course. Um, With all my notes and uh, highlighted. Yes. Um, <laughs> so um, I thought. So everybody here knows and loves our old sage of California, Jerry Brown. <laughs> and after they passed a big, anybody who's known or listened to Jerry Brown will very much love this. Uh, they've just passed a big. Uh, a housing uh, package of bills in 2017. That's right. And the, there's a ton of new money for affordable housing. Bills. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's uh, the Housing Accountability Act thing that Sonia pushed for. The amendment, yes. There's a, 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 a law that Senator Scott Wiener put forth. It was the precursor to SB, SB 50 that would, that would uh, make it. So there's a combination of like streamlining, funding, and enforcement. And it's all in 15 bills and they all gather at a, uh, at a, Pub, uh, affordable housing development in the Bayview, um, uh, and they're they got their little desk that they cart around for government signings. And I remember that he comes conference. and gives his speech, and he says, "I can't add anything because it's all been said, but I just can't help adding this one note." We talk about digging a ditch because throughout the thing they've said we've dug ourselves into a ditch, and now we're digging ourselves out. No, it's not a ditch. It's not a ditch. Look, all of these he's talking to. The legislature. All of these rules were passed by people like you. Let's face it. City and state people did all this good stuff. Energy efficiency, better insulation, more this and more that. You name it. It's all good. But as I always say, too many goods create a bad. So now you're trying to clean up some of the bad, but it is a lot of good too. So that's the paradox. We want to achieve safety and aesthetics and the right kind of neighborhoods and all the rest of that stuff. And we get a lot of rules. So now we got to figure out a way to streamline 
And we're doing that in these bills. And we need to fund because this capitalist system, I mean, it is powerful. But it's so powerful, you can't control it. And when people make a lot of money because they have all these apps, they start spending it and bidding up the price of housing. And there we are. So I know none of you want to cut the value (laughs) of people's homes they struggle to buy. So we're not talking about lowering the prices in one sense. Although we are. (laughs) So there it is. Plenty of paradox. Plenty of complexity. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) So Jerry Brown is sitting there trying to sort of say people worked really hard to buy their homes. And they didn't do anything wrong. They don't feel like they did anything wrong. The Bay Area is a lovely, wonderful place with a lot of innovation, a lot of opportunity. And people wanted to move there. And the value of their home went up. And though they're certainly very happy about that, I don't think they feel like it's their fault. I don't think they should feel like they should be demonized for having done nothing other than save a lot of money to buy a home that then rocketed up in value. I also think that they got help in saving a lot of money to buy that home. I mean, we talked the about... First, the first people who bought in the 60s and 70s, maybe. I mean, yeah. some yes, some no. I mean, a lot I mean, of really the, the FH, teachers owned homes, you know. The GA bill was oh, yeah, allowed yeah, GI bill, for yeah. mostly white people and, you know, FHA loan. There was redlining. There's a mortgage interest deduction that isn't given to renters. I mean... Uh, t- totally. But what I'm saying... But lots and lots and lots of different people throughout through the Western edition. There was a lot of homeowners in... Well, we can get into all that, but... Let's but, do it! Yes, but <laughs> what I'm saying is is that at some point when you talk about decommodifier housing, it's a pretty substantial group of single-family homeowners who of, of a great many races in a great many places who don't want their house price to go down. And I think the only real way you can realistically get out of it is have it start to grow more slowly. And then 30 years from now, it's just like a more normal... It, housing is seen as like a bank account sure. rather than uh, an investment. And I, I, I think that realistically, that's how you, quote, decommodify housing. I don't think overnight we're going to have some socialist revolution in which we say property doesn't like exist anymore. Um, I don't think that California is even capable of passing laws like that because they would be unconstitutional. So I do think we have to remind ourselves what system we live in and how we like focus on the outcome, not the policy. Like the outcome we want is housing to be more affordable and more different kinds of people to live in cities and enjoy the economic growth within them. I want people to be housed. That's like, I think that's the outcome. And I think that's the outcome that most of the people even in this audience and that most of the people out here want is, is we want, you know, people to, be in a decent place so that they're not sleeping outside and getting sick or so that they're not, um, you know, an entire family is sharing a room the way you portrayed in, in, in your book, um, which, you know, that's a, it's such a it feels like such a tricky problem. Uh, but then sometimes I'm like, well, just put them in houses. But then again, when we don't have a house, we have a housing shortage. Where are we going to put them? Well, right now. So what I was saying to people is. People say, oh, the Bay Area is anti-growth. I'm like, they're anti-housing. They sure don't have a problem with office buildings. Like, uh, you know, in Palo Alto, they have uh, about four jobs per housing unit. So Manhattan has like two and a half. Manhattan, this place we think of as having like a daytime population that's so much larger than the nighttime. Like Palo Alto is like about twice as bad as that. 
that's a decision that was made uh, by their own government. They decided to put a whole bunch of different kinds of uh, offices and other kinds of things that attracted tons of employees to that place and not to build housing for them. And so the, 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 the really bad traffic and all that, I, I say look in the mirror, right? Like you can't create a land use pattern like that and then be like surprised when the traffic shows up. So, um, and lots of, we should remember like lots of different people come to the Bay area for uh, the opportunity to capture economic growth, to get a better job. Right. And they run the spectrum. Um, they are immigrants who are coming here to kind of get their first toehold in, um, in typically the service sector. Um, but then then there are immigrants who are engineers and then there are uh, non-immigrants that are both. And, um, and I think that we are, uh, we have to be realistic that if we're going to create that level of opportunity and no housing with it, we're going to get the problems we have. Well, we have a really engaged audience. Thank you yes. for guys um, and participating. And so I'm going to go to another question um, just because we were uh, uh, talking about uh, the governor. Um, so this one is asking, what are the chances that state government in California will act on opening up zoning for more and higher density housing, given that cities, including San Francisco, refuse to act? Um, uh, it seems to me that the chances of something are high. Um, SB 50 was, was of course this bill that would have usurped local zoning power and allowed you to build four story buildings near transit and in certain kinds of school districts that got killed. But like, if anybody watched the video, if you're the kind of person who watches Senate uh, proceedings, on the video, <laughs> uh, the, um, the second it died, Tony Atkins, the president of the Senate, went right up to her microphone and said, we are going to pass something like this this year. Get, Be prepared to compromise because that's what we're going to do. Will that happen? I have no idea. Yeah, but they've all locked cynical. themselves into it. <laughs> and then as you pointed out in the beginning, Gav Governor Gavin Newsom has, um, you know, uh, he, he's usually all over the place. Oh, I'm going to fix college and health care. His last state of the state speech which was like, all housing, nothing yes. else but housing. Right. So people he, have at least recognized that they've all put their themselves on the line. Mm -hmm. And that suggests to me that they'll have to do something. I guess the thing I worry about is that they do something that's like vaguely symbolic and like not even remotely uh, effective. I mean, we saw um, the, the governor, you know, hold these press conferences with emergency FEMA trailers out in different cities and saying, haha, this is where we're going to put, you know, emergency shelter out and stuff. And so I think that's where people are saying, okay, is this going to translate to something substantial? And I don't mean to make you a genie. No, no, <laughs> but, no. I, mean, it, I don't, I don't follow the political stuff, but I don't, I think that people are sick of living like this. Mm -hmm. And I think at some point they're going to have to accept that this was a long time. What's the saying? Bankruptcy happens gradually and then all at once. Like that's how the housing thing happened. And so we're going to have to slowly come out of it. And I think people are, it's like the stages of grief or whatever, like they've now <laughs> accepted. And the next step is whatever is the next step. Right. Uh, there's another piece of your book. You take us to San Diego to talk about the hepatitis A outbreak that happens among um, people experiencing homelessness and different encampments and I guess shelters at some point as well. Um, and, and you write that the absence of an emergency or in the absence of an emergency, people had a tendency to get up and, and to to get caught up in these big intractable issues like mental health and drug addictions and that 
basically surround the question of homelessness in California. But you go on to say that these things work better um, when patients aren't in a daily battle to figure out where they need to spend that night. It was it, it, that piece was really fascinating to me. It reminds me of our current situation as we start thinking about the coronavirus and what impacts um, that this virus may have on this potentially vulnerable population because of their underlying health conditions. Um, I just wondered, you know, tell me like what what why you took us to San Diego a little bit there, and and like what does it take? I guess. To get, um, does it take, um, I guess, a, a medical emergency to get homeless services? The reason I liked San Diego was um, it's not, so one of the most profound questions anybody has asked me on this tour uh, was I was in Seattle and a woman uh, came, came to the microphone and at the end asked me, what do you think the cost is to us being around so many people living in such destitution? Do you think we're slowly killing ourselves and killing our own humanity by thinking that's normal? And I just sort of said, I don't have an answer to that. Let's just all sit with that question for a, a second. Uh, I think that people walk through the degree to which we've accepted homelessness as normal is like insane. Um, my colleague, Thomas Fuller at the New York Times, uh, came here from uh, Thailand and like a like great many correspondents who come to California, the first thing he does is go, this is crazy. And he starts writing all these stories about homelessness. So I'm from San Francisco. Uh, and a number of my friends kind of privately, and when I'm getting drinks, they're like, oh, I see your guy discovered homelessness as if like <laughs> this was a rookie error. And I said to him, shame on him or shame on you hmm. for accepting this as so normal that nobody should be writing about this like true human tragedy that we walk by every day as if it's like totally normal. And as if it's just like something that doesn't affect us, it's like, Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know how that happened, you know, whatever. Right. Uh, I think obviously I'm, I think writing about it and being like, this is not normal. <laughs> this is crazy is the right thing to do in San Diego. They had fallen into that same pattern. And then they have this hepatitis outbreak and it was very concentrated among the homeless community. They immediately build all these shelters. By the way, they should have been building permanent supportive housing, but whatever. They, they're in triage. They build all these shelters. They put hand-washing stations, bathrooms, all these things that people need. And this was around uh, like 2016, right? Or uh, Yeah. Yeah. It was around then. The tourism industry was freaked out that people didn't want to go to San Diego, right? So the will... A bunch of local investors gave us substantial amounts of money to build this. And they built the housing right by the baseball stadium. They certainly didn't start worrying about where it was going to go. They're like, oh, my God, I'll just go right there. You know, like, uh, and I think that we kind of start to live this delusion that you can live side by side with total destitution and have it not affect you. And the hepatitis outbreak was, to me, an amazing example of people very viscerally re realizing like, oh my God, like this, this, I, that can't just be like right next to me and have it not like cross over into my, my life too. Right. Um, when you say right next to me, you mean like literally proximity? Well, I just meant like, there's a lot of office buildings downtown. There's a lot of people who work downtown. There are of course a lot of condos downtown. There's a baseball stadium downtown in San Diego and they 
there's cantlets just kind of interwoven with it. Right. Uh, and I think that just walking by that as if like, it's not, you don't have some relationship with it. Mm, and and I, I thought the hepatitis was like a very vivid example of that's a crazy way to think you mm-hmm. do have a, that these, this is your community as much as anything else is and taking care of them is as much your responsibility as anything else in your community. And uh, I thought that the hepatitis outbreak forced people to reconcile with this in a way that you can ignore for quite a long time until it starts to feel like a crisis. Mm -hmm. And I guess I just hope that we can accept that it's always a crisis. You know, Um, it's always a, I read this book, uh, this, I'm going way off topic here, but I read this amazing book once, probably like my favorite book called Strangers Drowning. And it's, about it's a nonfiction book about people who almost have like a compulsion to help people mm-hmm. so much that they can't like function in the world because there's always so many people who need so much help. Everything feels like a crisis. Yes, and and she kind of talks about the author. She talks about how for them it's always wartime. It's mm-hmm. it's always uh, there's all they can't just even go through the world and see something. You know, I don't. I think that'd be a little too much, but. <laughs> we should probably look at homelessness and every day be like, Oh my God, that's crazy. That's a crisis. You know? And I thought that the hepatitis thing kind of was people waking up to that. Mm -hmm. And so for me, just narratively, you know, I'm always looking for people doing things and there was so much action so fast that I thought that it was a great example of people waking up. Right. And I just kind of hope we can wake up more every day. Right. Well, um, it, it brings it back to like this uh, idea of crisis, right? When you um, it, when you think about these uh, like a natural disaster or an emergency earthquake or something, and and the aftermath of an earthquake, people are united and saying we've got to do something, and so people are helping others despite whatever differences. So the term homeless was used before the eighties. It almost always was used to denote people who had lost their homes in a natural disaster. And then it became to mean what we modern times talk about it uh, right around 1980 uh, to mean people who have who cannot afford uh, or cannot find a home. Uh, So it's a weird way that that kind of happened that we've now. We don't think of it as a disaster. We just think of it as like a status. Well, the disaster is affordability would be right. I guess our our current disaster perhaps yeah and i always say mental health and drug addiction are reasons people find it hard to hold a home together and you know i've spent a fair amount of time in homeless camps like a lot of homeless people you meet this is not universally true but a a large number of them don't have what i would call like the best bonds like their family they don't they're sometimes estranged in some way like relations um yeah and it's hard to go through life alone you know like um you slip up once and uh, some pretty bad things can happen to you. And um, Well, you write that sometimes um, what they really need is for somebody else to care before they... Yes. And, um, and also, you know, there are other parts of the country you can go to and they don't have like some smaller number of uh, people with mental health problems. They don't have like a smaller number of people who find it interesting to lose themselves in chemicals they they just have higher home lower home prices Mm. um Mm. the other thing i always Mm. i always another 
Another little anecdote I always throw out to people is how many people remember the movie Big Mm-hmm. With Tom Hanks. Vaguely. Raise your hand if you remember <laughs> Big with Tom Hanks. It's the movie about the 12 year old who goes to this little carnival game and asks if he can become big. And then he becomes big and he goes home. And when he goes home, uh, his mom is like, why, why is some 25 year old in my house? And so she tries to hit him with the baseball bat. And then he wants to go spend the night at his friend's house, who's 12, but he can't do that because, of course, you can't bring, like, some 25-year-old dude home when you're 12. Uh, uh, and uh, so they were trying to figure out where to go. So they go to New York. I think they're in New Jersey. and But they're, like, 12, right? So they don't have any money. And they go to an SRO. And they give them the sh- a single-room occupancy hotel. And they give them the sheets uh, and the guy is a scary looking guy who gives him the hotel room. And then they get up to the hotel room and there's no bathroom, no sink, just a bed, like a wire bed in a room. And they hear like a gunshot next door. And then it's like crazy. And he pushes the dresser because he's so scared. We used to have SROs like that all around the country. A lot more of our city used to look like the Tenderloin than currently does. Uh, and New York had them all everywhere in the Bowery. Uh, I think Chicago had an estimated like 30, 40,000 rooms like that. That was our radically affordable housing supply. That was where people who were very close to the edge could live. You could be like a day laborer and, uh, have a mild drinking problem and still find a room for you know, five bucks or something. I mean, today's money, it might be 15 or 20 bucks, but you could, get housed fairly easily. And maybe there were all sorts of problems with that. Maybe it should have been better, but it was like better than the alternative. And I think sometimes in our, in our, in our wish to always make things cleaner and neater and to redevelop neighborhoods so that they look nicer, we kind of forget that there's a role for, for lack of a better term, kind of like bad neighborhoods (laughs) Um, that we need a really radical, affordable housing supply. And that housing supply is not going to have like a bunch of PhDs living in it. Um, But that's okay. There's a space for everybody in the world and we don't have to think of those people as being substandard. Their neighborhoods do work. They have lives. They have... I think what you're hitting at is integrated neighborhoods. Yeah, but we used to have that. We used to have tons of SROs around America and a lot of it's now condos and stuff like that. So we essentially got rid of our... I mean, you see movies like Big. Spider-Man used to live in an SRO. Uh, they're, you know, they're, they're in the early comic books. Uh, so that that used to be a piece of our housing supply that we just saw as normal and functional. Mm-hmm. And now we almost like don't want it. We think of it as a problem to be solved rather than uh, a, an integral piece of our city. Hmm. That's super judgmental. What? what uh, a problem to be solved. I think that people do see it that way. Clean up the neighborhood like that, right? But that's where people live. And, and some, you know, like I don't point to somebody else and be like, you need to live your life like this and you need to live in this place like that. You but know? I think over time, we, we obviously made those decisions. Uh, I'm not saying you made them or I made sure. them. Yeah. Saying, you know, the, uh, <laughs> people wanted things to look nicer and be nicer. And people also wanted exclusion. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, so I, at that time, almost everyone who lived in SROs was white. So it was at that time a different, if you go look at pictures of the problem, the homeless problem at that time, it looks quite a bit different than it does today. I I think exclusion can be based on 
on um, social class yeah, and how much you make and what you do. No, they see it as a part of the city that needs to be, quote, cleaned up. Yeah. And anyway, I'm just saying, and that impulse doesn't on the whole feel wrong because things do look, I'm, I'm, I, at, at first glance, because things do look nicer, the property taxes go up, right? But you can delude yourself and you kind of forget where do those people go? Do we have a role? Do we need housing like that? Do we need, and of course my answer is like, yes, but I think that we did have that at one point and we destroyed it. Just like we used to build six story apartment buildings next to the painted ladies. (laughs) (laughs) I want to squeeze in one more question from our audience. Um, This person asks, are we city manager? I'm going to, I'm going to put them on the spot. The city manager of Lafayette is here. Ah, well, the city manager for Lafayette is also the interim city manager for the city of Oakland. Um, But uh, this person asked, are we... That was the best firing ever. Or that wasn't a firing, (laughs) but can you imagine you're at this little city and next thing you know? (laughs) Well, let me get this one thing in. Are we in an age of uh, new aristocracy and while we aspirationally want equality realistically we want to build socioeconomic walls a truly gated city um are is this a story of tragedy if not what is a viable solution so i think they're asking if are we in an age of of new aristocracy while we actually say that we want equality are we really doing that so there are some things about our economy that have made it more unequal and uh i don't know if i want to call them bad the consequences of it are bad but the forces alone you know, that the knowledge economy has become kind of the industrial powerhouse of our time. That's just like a fact that happened. We're not going back. So the question is how we bring more people into that or right. to raise wages of people who work in the service sector. Some of that is going to be education and things like that. Some of that's just going to be like brute force policy, like raising the minimum wage. Um, I think sometimes people forget that, you know, wages are, matter when we, when we think about paying rent. T- totally. So... It's hard to say that we're not in a new aristocracy in the sense that, uh, you know, our, our levels of inequality in this country are like on par with like a third world country. That's probably developing. What's the right term for that? Anyway, uh, the um, a, a, a much poorer, more unequal country. We are on par with that. And um, and we've not had people this wealthy except for in our past Gilded Age. Mm-hmm. So are we living in a new Gilded Age? Like, I, I don't think you could make an objective case otherwise. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. The question is like what we do with that uh, and how we get more people to participate in that and become part of the knowledge economy, which is going to be the industrial powerhouse of our time. I don't think we're going to like just all go backwards and start plowing fields with like mules or whatever. So um, we need a lot of government programs to do that. We need to build affordable housing. We need to maybe like revisit public housing. We need to do all, raise the minimum, whatever. As Jerry Brown says, more this and more that. (laughs) But the greatest invention that ever was invented for raising the economic, uh, uh, you know, the life expectancy of people is cities. It's about a 10,000-year-old creation, and maybe, uh, maybe I'm getting that wrong, but it's certainly thousands of years old. When was Babylon? 10,000 years-ish? Anybody know the answer to that? Anyway. Uh, okay, so it's a couple thousand years old, anyway. Uh, 
better than every government program is people come to these places, they learn stuff, they invent stuff, they meet their spouses, and all these ex- ideas are exchanged, and civilization happens. By cities, do you also mean maybe I mean, community? Well, no, I mean big, dense, complicated cities. Uh, I mean, more happens in big cities. Big, and by big city, I mean like metro area, not like just city of San Francisco. I mean the whole Bay Area, all of Dallas, all of Houston. Like a mega region. Yes, these mega regions. Like, if you if you look at the at at the productivity, which is how much how innovative we're being, just density alone. Uh, accounts for huge amounts of productivity. Uh, so this is the thing we have that raises people out of poverty and raises them to the middle class and even to quite wealthy. Better than anything else, that thing does it. And this is true around the world. All of the world is urbanizing. A good amount of the growing middle class in China and India is, can be explained by urbanization alone. If you want to see a truly desperate, horrible, sad form of poverty... Go look at rural poverty. It is more hopeless than anything you have ever seen in a city. Because there's, you're like, how do you get out of this? I have no idea how you get out of this. In a city, you're at least like, well, we can do this. We can do this. We can, here's a program. Here's a school. Here's a... And the book is called Golden Gates because we've erected a gate around our most prosperous, amazing cities in the form of high housing prices and high rents, a golden gate. And... Um, I think that that is horribly, horribly unfair to our own Americans, to people around the world, uh, people whose lives can be improved so substantially by just getting a shot to be in these places where all this innovation is happening. And I don't just mean the Bay Area. I mean, again, Minneapolis, Denver, uh, not Houston, because... They don't have any housing problems there. I mean, they do have housing problems. They do have poverty, but they have low home. They're doing well as American home prices go. Um, Boston, whatever. Pick your place. And Seattle. Getting people into those places and more people in there is that is the best program we can have to raise uh, to raise our national well-being. And I think, and it, can you imagine what it would have been like if Detroit, when it was the Silicon Valley of its time, Detroit, this place that symbolized so much middle-class affluence and the manufacturing economy, if it would have been like impossible to get to because nobody could live there because it was too expensive, or if Chicago was the same way, we might not have ever had a great migration, we might not have had all sorts of things that we now see as fundamental to our culture and our and our people. So I think that... The best policy is to is to increase a bunch of housing so that we can put more people close to these industries. That might be a complicated process, but I think it's really important because I, I just don't know what we would look like as a country if it had been impossible, like I said, to get to Detroit when that was the Silicon Valley of its time. And um, so ultimately, I want these innovation engines, which are cities, to be, to welcome more people. And this is also why, by the way, I, I, oh, I know I have to end. Uh, a couple of Silicon Valley people have said, oh, I want to go build a city in the middle of nowhere and it'll be the regulation-free city. That is like a completely stupid idea. Uh, <laughs> and it's a completely stupid idea because it, it believes that the companies make the place 
not that the place makes the companies. And I'm firmly on the the place makes the companies side of things. And uh, and I, I just think that our sense of tolerance, our sense of what kind of people, I mean, all the greatest things we think about our culture come out of people smashing together and disagreeing like crazy and then finding ways to agree in cities. And all our ideas and all these other things come out of it. So that is what I think is the best policy program. Sorry. No, that's great. Thank you so much for spending so much time with us and sharing your insights. Do we now... Connor Doherty is uh, uh, the author of the new book, Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. I'm Erica Aguilar, and on behalf of myself, the Commonwealth Club, Connor, thank you for joining us today.